Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. We are very, very excited. Why, Alex, are we so excited? Who have we got that's so awesome today? Well, we've got some guy who people may have heard waffling on down the pub at some point. Uh, <laughs> we have Jonathan W. Jordan with us. So he's been on before talking about the Texas Navy and War Queens, which he wrote with his daughter. But he's a pretty outstanding historian in his own right, without Emily's help. It's like award-winning books and best-selling books like American Warlords, which is about Roosevelt's high command and victory in World War II, and Brothers Rivals Victors, which is about Eisenhower, Patton and Bradley. But he's come on today. Basically, we are his soapbox today because we have been laughing our heads off um, about the absolute nonsense coming out of Washington in the last few days, haven't we, John? Oh, it's, it's been uh, quite a show. Yeah, it's uh, it's been hilarious. But what you want to say today is essentially, you think this shit's bad. This is nothing new in American politics. Yeah, we're uh, gonna. I, I was. Uh, we're gonna go back to the good old days when everything was uh, nice, and we had uh, high-minded founding fathers who uh, stood up, wrote declarations, and shit marble. But, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but what we find out is the good old days were not uh, so much different from where they are today in, in some respects, at least. Yes, we are looking at ugly politics during the era of the founding fathers. So can you define for us then what Democrats and Republicans were in the late 1700s? Because it's not what they are now, is it? it it's not. Um Back in the uh, late 1700s, and we're talking really starting about 1794 to 1796, and up through the early 1800s, you had two main factions. You started out with the uh, Democratic Republicans, led by Thomas Jefferson. They tended to be the rural party of the South. They were in favor of states' rights. And although their names are, uh, their name is Democratic Republicans, they are a lot more like the modern Republicans you see today, the party of, that's based more in the South, party that is more of a rural, uh, rural party, and the party of smaller government. Uh, but the Democratic Republicans uh, ironically morphed into the Democratic Party eventually, and we'll get to that in a few minutes. The monarchical northern, uh, the, the, the manufacturing-based New York-type uh, political party was the Federalist Party, and they tended to be the party in favor of a strong central government. And this was at a time when there was a genuine debate as to whether we were a collection of sovereign states 
or whether we were headed by a strong central government and in what way we should do that. So uh, the Federalists and the Republicans were the first two groups to start splitting into parties. B before then, the, uh, feder the, the part, there were really no parties. Remember, we started off with President George Washington in 1792, and um, he, uh, he was a single, single person. Everybody could rally around him. There really were no defined parties, at least overtly at that time, and George Washington kept preaching the gospel of no factions, no parties. We should all be for the United States uh, as a whole, but uh, of course, Eventually, the uh, groups had different philosophies of government, ideas of the French Revolution and, or, or the British monarchy uh, took hold, and uh, those influenced the parties that became uh, the Federalists and the Democratic Republicans. So when we talk about elections back then, they don't look exactly like what they do now, do they? No, they, uh, they were run by slightly different rules. Uh, in some ways, they were similar. You had states that voted for electors. Um, so it was not a pure democracy. Whoever gets the most number of votes wins. Uh, on the other hand, you did it differently back then. You'd vote for your top choice for president. And uh, whoever got the most votes became president and electoral votes. And whoever got the second number of electoral votes became vice president. Well, as we know from modern experience, typically the two opposing candidates get the top two votes, and it's usually a two-party runoff. That's pretty much the way it's always done here. Mm -hmm. uh, but the, uh, the, the, the problem, of course, is that that means that the two opponents are most likely to have to serve together. So that would be the equivalent if in 2016, uh, Donald Trump was elected president and Hillary Clinton was elected his vice president. That was a flaw in the constitutional system that was not apparent during the nice old George Washington days, but became apparent once there were organized parties that started campaigning against each other. So when was the first contested election and what happened? The first election that we really get into um, is in, contested in any sense of the word is the 1796 election that pitted Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson against Vice President John Adams. Both men had served faithfully in George Washington's cabinet. Both of them were personally loyal to Washington. But in 1796, Washington said, I'm, into my, I'm finishing up my second term. I'm not going to run for a third term. Uh, Washington did that in one of those great statesman-like moments uh, where he concluded that if the, um, if, if the president does not outlive his tenure, if the person does not outlive the office that he serves, then that's a bad thing for the country. We, we don't want presidents to die in office because that creates transitional problems. So he stepped aside and Jefferson, who was influenced by the French model of republicanism, he was the ambassador to France, he was a populist sort of from, the, from, from Virginia, he was a champion of the farmers and the, uh, the South and, and what was eventually going to be a growing West. Um, he ran against uh, John Adams, who was from Quincy, Massachusetts, 
he, uh, Adams was a federalist and had, uh, had believed in a strong central government. Uh, it was needed to put down things like internal insurrections, such as the, uh, a, a revolt against the tax on whiskey that had occurred in uh, two years earlier. He was a believer in a strong uh, central executive, a strong president. And so these two conflicting philosophies went head to head against each other. Now, as uh, historians have pointed out, back in 1796, this kind of republic didn't have much of a blueprint. There was very little empirical data that would tell Jefferson or Adams, here's why I'm right. Uh, they, they all had theories. They, they read the writings of the, the French philosophes. They looked at, uh, at, at their own experiences. And they had these political beliefs that were largely untested. And because they were untested, each side pretty much had to go with their gut. And uh, that election became a very close and very ugly election. Um, in that election, uh, John Adams squeaked by, winning by three electoral votes over Thomas Jefferson. Um, however, the, in that election, uh, there were three candidates who were really viable candidates for the presidency, Adams, Jefferson, and then a third guy from South Carolina, who Alexander Hamilton had secretly, uh, secretly campaigned for on the, and on the idea that, it's, uh, that Adams, who he personally disliked, who Hamilton personally disliked, mm. and Jefferson... I want to say, did he write a song about it? But no. Yeah, I was, I was about to say, yeah, <laughs> Hamilton is the, the Broadway star right now. And, and we see in that uh, very, in that brilliant, brilliant uh, musical, the animosity between Hamilton and Jefferson. Hamilton was a federalist. He worked faithfully for George Washington. Uh, he did not like Adams. Uh, Adams was a, a New England man. Uh, Hamilton was an immigrant New Yorker. And uh, the two of them did not get along. So even though they were part of the same party, you had Hamilton secretly working on the side of a third party guy who might be able to knock Adams out of the way, but uh, more importantly, might likely keep Jefferson from gaining enough votes to become president. Uh, it turned into a squeaker. As I said, uh, Adams ended up winning slightly. But uh, during this time, a precedent was set for a lot of mudslaging, a lot of ugliness that would become uh, more pronounced as the, as the 18th century ended and the 19th century began. I want to know, how did the press react during all of this? Well, even before the, uh, the election, uh, both uh, the Federalists and the either anti-Federalists or budding Democratic-Republican group had their own partisan papers. Uh, Jefferson early on around uh, 1794, 1795, uh, hired a French uh, translator clerk in his State Department to publish anti-federalist articles in the National Gazette. Alexander Hamilton funded the Gazette of the United States. And in these, in these newspapers, they would start, uh, they would just bash each other in the press. In fact, that's one of the lines from Hamilton, uh, the, the musical, we bash each other in the press and we don't print retractions. And that's really what they were doing. Uh, you had people like Thomas Paine, who famously wrote the pamphlet Common Sense during the Revolutionary War. 
and uh, he was a Jefferson partisan. Uh, they would they would basically talk about the scandalous acts, the dangerous ideas, the uh, the avarice, the vice, every one of the seven deadly sins practically you could come up with. Mm. They would charge the other candidate with. What's so, some of the ridiculous shit that they accuse each other of? Oh well, they um, and and this this actually uh, becomes a it becomes a uh, later uh, the later iterations um, had one person from. Uh, a pro-Jeffersonian who wrote for the Philadelphia Aurora. He was the editor and publisher. He described President Adams as the querulous, bald, blind, crippling, toothless Adams. Um, meanwhile, you had, uh, um, you, you had, uh, oh, Jefferson being accused in Federalist pamphlets of athe- atheism, of libert- being a libertine, of a Jaco- being a Jacobin, a shameless debtor as a farmer, he was an advocate of states' rights over the Constitution, and rumors had it he was sleeping with some of his slave women, which, as it turns <laughs> out, actually did. This um, is like no better than the shit they chuck at each other now, is it? Oh, absolutely. So Adams comes across as this, as I said, bald, toothless, incompetent grump. Uh, he was called a madman, a monarchist, corrupt, insane. Um, he was even accused of sending uh, Charles Pinckney. Uh, a, a diplomat over to England to fetch two wenches for himself and two wenches for Pinckney. So he was basically <laughs> sex trafficking is, is what the charge was. Adams actually just told one of his friends, a uh, former law partner, as far as that last charge of, of Pinckney picking up uh, four prostitutes, I declare upon my honor if this is true, then General Pinckney has kept them all four to himself and cheated me out of my two. Um, he had a sense <laughs> of humor about it, but uh, it was an extremely nasty set of uh, charges that went back and forth. And it really personalized campaigning. The, the ideas started to take in some ways a backseat to just how much uh, negative press could you throw at your opponent? Okay, so... This is okay. They've learned this is new, this election thing. They'll grow as people. When they come back next time, they'll know how to behave, right, in 1800? A- absolutely. They uh, cleaned up their act, and it was, it was a happy time. Now, the election <laughs> is of 18... that a lie? <laughs> yeah. yeah the, the, the election of 1800 resulted in a lethal duel, the permanent, almost permanent fracturing of a longtime friendship between founding fathers and a constitutional amendment. That's how bad it became. Now, (laughs) uh, at the time, uh, there was actually, you know, there were were concerns that New England would secede from the Union if Jefferson were elected. That uh, and David McCullough, the brilliant historian, wrote that the election of 1800 became a contest of personal vilification, surpassing any presidential election in American history. And whether Adams or Jefferson was the most abused would be hard to say. Uh, it, was, uh, it, it was one of those just ugly times that, uh, that, that became, uh, that, that was symptomatic of what we see now. It was a close election. It was one that uh, ended up uh, going to the House of Representatives. It, uh, it, it ended up becoming such a, uh, again, just a bitter uh, personality contest. And in the end, Congress realized that there were constitutional flaws in our process. 
after uh, uh, Jefferson was ultimately elected, they changed the Constitution and provided that from now on, instead of having the uh, one person, uh, whoever gets the most votes becomes president, number two becomes vice president, that you would vote separately for president and vice president. So you could have essentially the two parties putting their own slate up and uh, we vote for them together uh, uh, nowadays. So the election of 1800 uh, really didn't, didn't, do any, uh, didn't do anybody any favors. Ultimately, uh, famously, Hamilton, Alexander Hamilton and the uh, runner-up to the election, Aaron Burr, um, a New Yorker, uh, were, so, uh, were so angry with each other over the result that uh, they met at a duel that resulted in, in Alexander Hamilton's death. Uh, the friendship between John Adams, who ended up third, and Thomas Jefferson uh, had started back during their early Revolutionary War days. These are the two men who collaborated on the Declaration of Independence, one of the most beautifully written document, political documents in history. Uh, they had been fast friends. They had been, uh, they met each other overseas in England uh, briefly when they were both serving as diplomats in the early Republic. But that 1800 election was so bitter, so divisive between the two that uh, it, it resulted in the fracture of their friendship that did not resume until after Jefferson's uh, tenure as president had ended. Uh, part of the reason for that, uh, for the, the viciousness, um, or, or one of the results, I should say, of the viciousness of the press uh, charges back and forth during that time period was the so-called Sedition Act. It was a law passed under John Adams. Uh, he didn't, he didn't uh, draft the act, but he did sign it. And it provided that there would be criminal penalties for speaking or publishing any false, malicious, or scandalous writings against the United States government or Congress with the intent to bring them into contempt or disrepute. Um, the idea was that, uh, that the press had gotten so out of hand, so partisan, and had been throwing so, many, so much fake news at the electorate that uh, we're actually going to set criminal penalties for political speech, which was uh, an early embarrassment to our republic. And in fact, the guy who, who wrote that uh, op-ed in the Philadelphia Aurora describing President Adams as querulous, bald, blind, crippled, and toothless, he was one of the first people arrested under that act. So uh, that, <laughs> wow. that's kind of where we were. We think of CNN and Fox News in the United States as being the two hyper-partisan uh, news outlets, but they had nothing compared to the National Gazette, the Gazette of the United States, and the other, uh, the other papers of the time. Does this stop them getting involved? Uh, no, no. It, it, <laughs> uh, they, they, that's the thing. They just continued, and uh, eventually Congress uh, – Congress, uh, repealed the Sedition Act. It also repealed the, uh, its Companion Act, the Alien Act, which was basically there to keep Irish out of the country. Uh, by, by ch it changed the, uh, the, the time to become a U.S. citizen from five years to 14 years, and the Irish at that time hated the British, which of course is very different today, and they generally voted Republican, which of course is the same that they do today. So um, and I'm being sarcastic in both of those, uh, but, but the, the idea was that we had such a 
uh, such unrest in the country, so many threats of insurrection and rebellion, um, and it was there was so much nasty politicizing going on that uh, Congress actually quelled freedom of speech and uh, did a lot of dirty things just to kind of tamp down on it. I'm I'm curious to know were there any elections in this time period that just didn't involve chaos like this? Uh, Alina, when we get uh, past the election of 1800, the one good thing that came out of that time period was it basically settled the political question. For the elections of 1796 and 1800, it had been a real horse race between the uh, Federalists and the Democratic Republicans. Uh, the elections were close, very narrowly decided, and, uh, and, and either side could tip the balance. But with Jefferson's election in 1800 and his re-election in 1804, that more or less settled the question and put the Democratic Republicans in charge. Uh, uh, after uh, after uh, Jefferson's election, then uh, we, you had uh, James Madison and uh, uh, James Monroe, two Democratic Republicans who were elected. They had both served as allies to, uh, to uh, Thomas Jefferson. They were all Virginians. And this set, the peri- set a time period uh, up until about 18, the, the War of 1812 and a little afterward, actually, um, where the Democratic Republicans were in charge and things were a little bit quieter. So the elections were, were pretty much, uh, you know, settled affairs more or less um, until we get to say around the time of Andrew Jackson in the late 18, in, in the mid 1820s. Before we get to that, can I ask a question? You know, there's the limit of two terms. No one can be president more than twice, can they? Or two four year terms. That's correct. Is that because of foresight right at the beginning, and that was always the way, or is it because someone was a dick and they wanted to make sure it didn't happen again? That's that's a good question, Alex. Um, at the time, it was a tradition. Mm. Nobody, because of George, the precedent George Washington set, every president until Franklin Delano Roosevelt honored that uh, that precedent, and there was no need for a law to be passed. Yeah. Now with FDR uh, in 1940, Britain was at war, Europe was was at war, Asia was at war. Uh, the United States implemented its first ever peacetime draft, and we were facing a crisis. And, and Franklin Roosevelt, who was enormously popular, said, uh, and, and I think there's, there's some truth to that. He said, look, the, the soldier on the front line doesn't get to say when he goes home. And while I think Roosevelt genuinely could not resist pulling the levers of power, he, uh, he also had a decent case to make to the American public that this was a crisis that was unprecedented and he needed to be the one to manage it. So he ran for president in 1840 and I'm sorry, 1940 and was elected. He was reelected in 1944. His health was going. And then after that, we amended the constitution to provide that there would be a two term limit on presidents. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't call Franklin Roosevelt necessarily a dick, but uh, but he did disregard that uh, time-honored tradition. Mm. Get back on track a little bit. Uh, he becomes the seventh president, doesn't he, in 1828? He, he did. And uh, for the 1828 election, it was actually a rematch of the previous election. So you start off with uh, 
with, with basically a split between the Northerners and Southerners, reflected in the Federalists and the Democratic Republicans. But then once the Democratic Republicans run everything, th they start to factionalize themselves. And so you had uh, John Quincy Adams, who won in 1824. He was the son of John Adams. Now, John Adams was a Federalist, but John Quincy Adams was kind of a Northern Democrat. And during the election of 1824, um, Adams went against Andrew Jackson, and uh, the election went into the House of Representatives because there was, uh, Jackson actually won the popular vote, but uh, he didn't get, a, he didn't get a majority, did not get a majority of the electoral votes, the votes uh, cast by the states. And as a result, the House of Representatives ended up electing John Quincy Adams uh, with the help of some anti-Jackson uh, guys who just really hated him. Uh, so they did a rematch in 1828. And, the, uh, and, after, and at that time, between 1824 and 1828, the old Democratic Republican Party fell apart. And uh, it became basically, do you like Adams or do you like Jackson? It, it was a lot like the 2016 election where that was driven as much by, by personality as by policy. So uh, the, the, it became essentially the Jackson versus anti-Jackson parties. Uh, the, in, in 1828, during the rematch, it became a, a set a new level for mudslinging. And a good part of it was, was really focused on the personal qualities of each candidate. Uh, Jackson was, uh, had lived a very colorful life. He had uh, been a, a young uh, kind of teenage soldier in the Revolutionary War. He'd been wounded by a British saber. Uh, he defeated the British at the Battle of New Orleans in 1815. Uh, he, had, he had owned slaves. He uh, had married a woman who they thought was divorced, but it turned out the paperwork hadn't finished and been finalized. So he ended up having to remarry her, and that caused a scandal at the time. Um, uh, Jackson, as, as a military leader, had also had people you know, shot or hanged for desertion and things like that. So all that became fodder for uh, the anti-Jackson uh, candidates. And uh, in the end, um, it, it uh, uh, you know, the, the mud was slung at Jackson, but he was so popular as kind of a, you know, a Southerner, a Westerner, a populist, and a war hero that he ended up uh, taking the election uh, pretty handily on the electoral vote count. Uh, it was, he, he basically got every state except the New England states, but that was another, uh, another setting where you just had a lot of mud being slung at each other, and uh, Basically, they were, um, you know, it was, it was bitterly contested as well. Once he was uh, elected, there, uh, he, he basically, his followers were called the King Mob. And the idea was these are basically a bunch of Western anarchists um, who, uh, who were like, uh, you know, going nuts. Uh, after the inauguration, uh, there, uh, a mob of his followers basically swarmed the White House, and they ended up knocking furniture over. It was just basically a big, you know, it was, it, it was a, a big mass crowd and just clusterfuck uh, for the inauguration in, in March of 1829. And, uh, you know, 
the furniture was knocked over, things were broken. Jefferson or, or Jackson had to go out the back door to kind of get away <laughs> from the crowd. And so, you know, the the conservative uh, the conservatives from the anti-Jackson group uh, called that King mob as the, uh, or, or said that the King mob was basically ruling and you're not going to, uh, to have an organized government under Jackson. He actually had a fairly successful uh, couple of uh, terms in office and, uh, and did well as our seventh president. It's just, <laughs> what's, oh, you've got all this to look forward to next week. Oh yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Hopefully, security will be uh, a little bit tighter, and uh, at least with the Capitol Hill area, there's more room to to move around and knock over punch bowls and uh, and uh, you know and furniture. So we'll see how that goes. Yeah, <laughs> it would have happened, I think, by the time this podcast goes out, yeah, uh, and we yeah. can chuckle about it. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Oh, but um, so let's go to another sort of founding father. Does he count as a founding father? But Abraham Lincoln, he's a grown up. He's a sensible man. Let's go to his election in 1860. Surely this giant of American history, when he became 16th president of America, his election campaign was all very trite and well-behaved, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Uh, this was the, um, uh, the easy one that really, you know, people overlooked because it was uh, just something that didn't, uh, didn't really matter too much. No, this um, is sarcasm, isn't it? Because yeah, I think it, it your words more, for this is it, total it, shit show. It, it became there. There are very few times when you can say an election destroyed a country, and mm. and while the United States survived the aftermath of the 1860 election, it was um, the the uh, uh, you know the, the election was one that uh, that, that really set the stage for um, our, our worst. Our, our, our lowest time in, in history. So it basically is in part responsible for the American Civil War, is what you're saying? Yes, yes, in very, mm. very much in part. Now, uh, a moment ago, we, we talked about uh, Andrew Jackson. He was a Westerner. He was the guy who kind of, you know, amplified, ex exemplified the New South, the man of the West, and that was when Tennessee and Kentucky were considered Western states. Uh, the West grew after Jackson's administration, Andrew Jackson was a unionist. He believed in, in expanding the United States of America under a fairly strong central government. And although he did not provoke a war with Mexico, his successors, uh, his successors did. 
And uh, James K. Polk, the president, um, sort of got us into the U.S.-Mexican War in, in 1848. And that war resulted in uh, an American victory and the acquisition of territory from, uh, from the Texas border, Texas western border, because Texas had already joined the United States in 1846, uh, all the way to California and Colorado and Utah and those, those Rocky Mountain states. So the United States brought in a massive amount of territory, but the lingering problem that America had for expansion was the slavery question. That had been something that, that the founding fathers struggled with, and they knew in their minds that it would only become a problem that got worse and worse because the slave population would get bigger and bigger. The North tended to be abolitionist and believed that slavery was immoral, evil, and, uh, and uneconomical. The South held on to, uh, to its, its institution of slavery and it, because it used a lot of slaves in its farming, uh, particularly its cotton crops. So the country began fracturing, and as new states were added in the aftermath of the Mexican War, the two parties knew that if, if they had a slave state, that would add to their political power or subtract to their political power. So the question of slavery became worse and worse, uh, in, and, and it degenerated under the mediocre presidents that uh, led up to the 1860 election. In the 1860 election, Abraham Lincoln, who a Republican, uh, and the Republicans at this point were the anti-slavery Northerners, mm. ran against John Breckinridge of Kentucky. He was a Southern Democratic candidate. And uh, Lincoln ended up winning a decisive electoral vote. He carried 18 states. Breckinridge carried 11 states. So the states were clearly split. And uh, because of that, in, in fact, you could almost look at the Civil War and tell who's going to be on the North, who's going to be in the South, and who's a border state by who voted for Lincoln, who voted for, uh, who voted for um, uh, you know, either Breckinridge or, uh, you know, and Douglas, uh, Stephen Douglas, a Democratic candidate, and then... Um, uh, and who voted for, uh, you know, the third candidate, John Bell. So you've got, uh, you, you had a very highly divided country. Lincoln was um, considered to be an ugly man. He was, uh, he was lampooned as an ape, even by uh, <laughs> people who would serve in his cabinet. Uh, he was considered to be sort of a country lawyer hick uh, from, from back out, you know, back in the backwoods. He made a big deal about his log cabin and, and rural background. He was actually a very, very intelligent lawyer. He was a good trial lawyer, and he tended to, um, you know, he, he, he was a, a, a very good uh, commercial lawyer as well in the disputes between the big railroad companies and the big steamship companies. Um, so you had Lincoln as sort of this candidate who was going to be considered um, you know, not personally a very, it was a good target for personal attacks, but more to the point, the country was a tinderbox ready to explode. And the 1860 election was essentially the last straw shortly at, for, for the Southerners, shortly after the election of Lincoln, 
Uh, South Carolina seceded from the Union. It was followed by a number of other states, uh, Alabama, Georgia, and then um, when Lincoln decided that that uh, decided that that was worthy of calling up um, uh, volunteers for the army to suppress the insurrection, then other states such as Virginia followed. So it became a uh, a real turning point, which, like the election of 1800, uh, eventually settled things for a long time. And it, it was one of the it was sort of a cathartic moment. It was horrifying, but at least it did settle the slavery question and uh, took it off the table. It of course did not take other things like racism, political, uh, you know, political oppression and other things like that off the table, but at least it got the, the question of race, uh, of slavery, which had been lingering since the founding of the Republic uh, dealt with. So yes, it became another shit show uh, for America. I'm curious to know, out of all because we've spoken about a couple of elections here, of all of these completely chaotic elections, which one for you is probably the most important? Well, obviously, when your your uh, election results in a civil war, that is the most you know that that's the the one that's going to have the most impact in many ways. Uh, but but taking war aside, if you, if you just say let's talk about this as a political discussion, I think it would have to be the election of 1800 uh, because it firmly established the idea that. A, we can have a two-party system. B, we can have a period where one party is dominant for a long time, and uh, there will be opposition parties that kind of pick at them until they can coalesce and form their own party. Um, that, and then, of course, it mechanically it, it set the process of uh, the way changing the way we voted for president. So you would not have uh, in in the year 2021 President Joe Biden sworn in right before Vice President Donald Trump is sworn in. This has been brilliant because I think we have just about proven that although, granted, nobody in any of your stories was wearing a Chewbacca bikini and horns. And I'm obsessed with that guy. I know. I just, I can't, I can't believe they're indulging his organic diet. I feed him Cheetos and let him He's used to feeding uh, prairie grass with his herd on the, on the range. What a dick. Um, do you anticipate, I guess you'd be interested because this would have happened by now. Do you think they have a handle on the inauguration next week? Do you think we're now seeing the end of this utter carnage that has been the 2020 election? Uh, yes and no. I think they do have a handle on the uh, on the inaugural. It's going to be a peaceful event. It will probably be accompanied by demonstrations uh, of of different sorts. So you know how you characterize it, whether it's a protest or an insurrection or uh, you know whatever it is. I think there's going to be some of that, but there will. I, I don't think there's going to be anything that directly affects the inauguration. No to the question, have we seen the end of the chaos of the 2020 election? My belief is that every uh, each side looks at the nasty thing the other side does and does about 10% more when it's their turn. And we've been going down this road for some time, since the 2000 election, in fact, when um, it, it, that was a very close election between George Bush and Al Gore. 
it had to be settled it, it it had to be settled by the US Supreme Court after it came down to a 570 vote difference in the state of Florida um after that uh slogans like not my president began percolating into the mainstream and the idea of well I didn't vote for the son of a bitch but he's my president is uh that that seems to be something that we are losing and the nastiness of today's elections is a little different from the nastiness of the elections in the early days of the republic because back in the early days of the republic you flung your mud at the candidate and you might even fling your mud at some of his inner circle but basically that's who got the mud flung at him but because of the internet because of politics becoming a spectator sport the mud is starting to be thrown at a broader series of targets. So mm. if you worked in the Trump administration and you're eating in a restaurant, it's okay for us to get a mob to kind of, you know, scream you out of the restaurant. And um, it's, it's okay to get on the, uh, on Twitter and uh, castigate any person who supported the person you don't like. And so that level of nastiness that we saw in the 1800s, which was limited to, by and large, the president and their supporters or the candidate is now filtering deeper into the fabric of our society and is becoming closer to a social uh, conflict rather than a purely political contact, uh, conflict. And that's, that's what I am concerned about. And uh, I, it's going to be our challenge to find a way to reverse that trend if we're going to be stronger going forward. I, I want to say thank you so much. That was so insightful. And for the first time, I got excited about American history. So thank you very much for that. <laughs> for the first we, uh, time, that's harsh. We, we, uh, I, I was hoping to go into uh, about an hour of how uh, the Roosevelt administration limited the, uh, the, the import uh, and immigration of Jews who are escaping the Holocaust and those who are trying to get away from Auschwitz. But, you know, I couldn't find a way to work it in. Another Damn. time, we will do that. Another time, yes. No, I, I do. I'm lying. I'm not. It's not the first time, guys. Um, it's been quite a few times, but I've, I was captivated. John, you can talk any time for me. You know, I'm captivated by everything you say. You're, you're very, very kind, Delina. And uh, look, this is. These are always fun to do. Join us tomorrow when we will be learning all about. Mary the First, that's Bloody Mary, because we spoke to Johanna Strong, who specialises in the historiography of Mary the First, which is really interesting because it turns out that history hasn't necessarily been fair to her, and we'll find out why, so don't miss out on that. Don't forget that we do exist on Patreon as History Hack and on Patreon as well, which is Podbean's own version. Uh, Alina and I have had massive fun doing this in 2020, uh, but life's going to change quite a lot next year and we're going to actually have to go and earn a living, etc. If we want to keep up the regularity that we've been bringing you and the kind of guests that we've been bringing you and the workload, then we will need your help. So uh, if you join... There's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms. We're revamping ourselves on both of them. So don't forget to go in. You can do as little as a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up History Hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year. We are now on YouTube. We are posting all of our new episodes on there and we have our own channel and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last hundred on some platforms. So you can go and listen to your heart's content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time. So do go over there and subscribe. 
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.